0: Welcome to Disruptive Narrative Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Lule.
1: And I'm producer Miranda Wilson.
0: In these episodes, we will be highlighting people who are impacted by histories and systemic processes of neglect and disinvestment, but do not have a seat at the table and may not feel seen.
1: This is a space for people that are in a place of radically reimagining a path forward, but not necessarily a space for those who are unpersuaded by the need for a better world where Black futures matter.
0: We are focused on sharing perspectives that are often unshared or unheard because they challenge what we think we know. In this podcast, guests are the experts of their reality.
1: In the second part of the conversation, you and Dr. Moten dig further into what the leaps you have made out of that traditional structure um, have now allowed you to explore and reveal. And so we're going to hear from Dr. Moten here on what she's now exploring in her work.
2: So the Smithsonian is an is an awesome awesome uh, institution. Has access to a lot of resources. The National Museum of American History itself has nearly 2 million objects in its collections. So a lot a lot of collecting going on over the the long time that the museum has been open and in existence. Um, But the museum has has in some ways missed lots of opportunities to really be the National Museum of American History in the sense that it did not always collect or always, uh, prioritize the collecting of stories related to African Americans, related to Asian Americans, Latinx folks, right? There are lots of gaps in the museum's collections related to large chronological periods related to those, to those groups. And so whereas the Smithsonian is this great platform, it, a, lot of, a lot of work needs to be done to actually make it reflect the history of the United States. And so me coming into the museum, I was one of three African-American women, I should say Black women, hired to uh, focus on African-American history. And so my position specifically focuses on business, and labor history, black business and labor history. And so it is my job to steward, ex- assess, and collect around the vast history of Black people in business and then their work experiences. And so what I will say in terms of my methodological practice, um, it really has a lot to do with my training in women in gender history, in Black feminism, where I read stories and I read objects from an intersectional framework, under, also understanding in the Black feminist tradition that people's stories, their um, their positionality can bring a lot of insight to historical analysis. And so I lean on that as I research and think about what objects to acquire and the stories that we need to revise regarding the objects we do have. And so my work as a curator, um, it, it differs from curators of past, right? Curators of past have said, oh, for example, I am the curator of, let's just make an example. I'm the curator of Medical implements. And so it is my job to create or to collect or to acquire all of the various types of medical implements so that it can tell us a story about the change of medical implements over the course of time, right? In that specific focus, you may not always understand how medical implement A, uh, what medical implement A means and who touched or who used medical implement A, right? Because the focus of that collection is to understand medical implements, right? Not necessarily the person behind that medical imp- implement. my My responsibility I see as a curator is to understand the person in front. <laughs> Of that medical implement, right? It is the object that will then illuminate the story of a person, of a group, right? Et cetera. And so I am a kind of a person first curator rather than an object-first curator. I think objects can help us tell great stories, but we just shouldn't be collecting objects in and of themselves. Um, Also in my curatorial practice, I am really um, centering community engagement, right? And what I mean by community engagement is really thinking about how communities need to be in conversation with the museum about what we collect and how we analyze the objects that we have collected, right? Right. And so what that means is, as I think about what kind of objects the museum needs related to African-American business and labor, I need to be connected with some African-American businesses and and labor and and, and workers. Right. And and to do that, for me, that's really grounded and focused in specific communities. And so right now I've been at the museum, like I mentioned, uh, one and a half years, but I have not collected very much because I am developing my relationships first, right? And that is really important to me, developing relationships, which may or not may, or may not lead to a collecting opportunity. I am about the relationship building um, as the prime way of thinking about my curatorial practice. And so that's actually where I am right now. And my practice is really thinking about who do I need to be talking to? What stories do I need to be uh, amplifying, right? And how can those stories help us then think about what the collection of objects should look like.
0: Something that you're kind of bringing to light, I think we both share in our work and our focus on Black women, is that what are we both able to like, bring to bear or bring to the record that kind of goes unseen or unrecognized? Yes. So, like When I think about my own work, and I see some synergies here, you know, my original dissertation work, really aim to like push back on this idea that most discussions about like inner city renewal,
2: black Mm -hmm. women,
0: objects of study, single mothers, welfare queens, drug addicts, and other like stereotypes. Right. at, At best victims at worst sources of urban decay. Right. Right. But I think I argue that if you were looking through a critical intersectional lens that we bring, you could see that these black women share a long legacy of urban activism in local neighborhoods. Yes. Yes. Recognize could shift the
2: conversation
0: that shaped the urban renewal agenda. Right. like I looked at public housing, workforce center development, crisis management work after natural disasters and efforts to like unify neighborhood associations for equitable outcomes. And all these domains of like neighborhood resilience and renewal have been influenced by very um, paternalistic urban renewal discourse and policies. And this is just the idea that government knows better than you do. Right. Right. But the research really aims to explain how this discourse has been shaped by a political environment that does not invite rigorous debate or critique by the people most impacted. Right, exactly. Yet, I would argue that politically engaged Black women, because let's be clear, all Black women are politically engaged, is how we're defining what the political is, are challenging these restrictive forms of privatized political engagement, and they expose uneven landscapes of power. If you look at what Black women are doing, like when I started my research, I literally asked this question, what, why does the Black mother with two jobs and no time show up to that meeting? Like, why does she do it, right? Whether it was a school board meeting, Whether it was a new development coming to her community, why does she show up? And how is she asserting herself politically? Right. right? How is her voice disrupting that space completely? Because if you listen to Black women, and this is my humble opinion, if you listen to the things that Black women are telling us, it would disrupt everything that we determined to be common in this nation. Right? Yep. Um, and I, I think I share this sentiment with you in, in your own research, and I want to hear from you, like, what do you feel like your work is uncovering the, the kind of unseen that folks don't want to acknowledge that comes out of um, the, 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 the data that you're pulling, the stories yeah. you are bringing to the fore that you said, they were there. Right, right. <laughs> chose not to engage with
2: them. Right. And so the one of the main points, which was the main point of my my graduate dissertation, and which is uh one of the two points I make with my book, I'm gonna leave y'all hanging on the second point. But one of the main points that I aim to show is that similar to what you're saying is that when we think about black women's political activism, for the Milwaukee case, and I would argue in the urban Midwestern context, maybe even in the urban Northern context, that you can't think about Black women's political concerns without also acknowledging and recognizing their economic concerns. And so what I saw a lot of, what I saw, I can't say a lot because there's not a ton of historiography or a ton of scholarship on the Milwaukee Freedom Movement, but what uh, what that historiography says or does is points up a very kind of political centered type of activism. And what I mean by that is that it's really focused on traditional notions of civil rights, right? So desegregation um, of public schools and of accommodations, fair housing, leisure activities, right? With no kind of consideration of what are are people doing about jobs? What are people doing about work, right? And so when, when I looked at Black women in the record, I saw they were always thinking about, strategizing, concerned with work. And so if you're going to be talking about Black women's political activism, you have to always be talking about their economic standpoint, right? And, and how they are trying to change that, not only for themselves, but for their families and for the generations to come. So what I do is not only do I include it, I center it. Because it has been so marginalized in stories about Black women's civil rights activism, especially when we get into the urban Midwest and the urban North. And especially when we talk about Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which was at one point known as the tool belt of the industrial Midwest, right? You can't talk about Milwaukee without talking about work. And so why would you remove that from From a narrative about the black freedom struggle, and so um, that 's what i 've uncovered partially in 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 my research and what will be what you 'll be able to read about in my book um, and I think that is supremely important. I think if you think about the scene right now, where we are right now, what are we struggling with we 're struggling with economic injustice right and and that is not the only thing we 're struggling with, but our struggle with economic injustice is crucial to. Um, Black black people's um, position right now in the United States.
0: I want to thank you again for spending this time with us and kind of gesturing us toward this kind of present-day conversation of what is this really about. As someone whose background is in urban housing and economic development, I always say it's never about the house. The house is a structure, right? The door, the shingles, and the windows are the structure, but let's just be clear, it's everything about the ability to maintain that home that we should all be looking at. It's the root causes. Um, And unfortunately we are in a system that functions in silos, departmentalizes the notion of help or assistance, and you have the communities that need your support the most in this social service runaround, which is this concept that we talked about in um, the report we wrote called the illusion of choice. Um, the social service runaround places those folks in a crisis decision-making states who are suffering from joblessness, the realities of reentry, entry et cetera, et cetera, like without the resources that they need to maintain the structure itself. And I'm, I'm curious because you, you keep giving us this cliffhanger with the book, right? <laughs> um, I would love to uh, share with folks what we can expect from Dr. Moten now and into the future. Yeah, uh, yeah,
2: yeah. So I have one comment on kind of this social service runaround idea that you've written about, and and I and what the comment is that that social service runaround is a failure to acknowledge or trust people with their own lives, right? Just give people the money and let them answer to solve their own problems. They don't need another caseworker coming into their house to look at or or examine. They don't need to be submitting no monthly report. People need to have what they need to survive and thrive. They don't need no oversight, right? And that is partially <laughs> what I reveal in, in my book a little bit, right? That Black women were saying, let us solve the answers to our own problems, right? And of course, those problems are structural, right? But also in the the case, especially of the welfare mothers who I study, they were like, just give us the money. Give us the money. Raising our children is a full time job, and give us the money, right? We don't need you coming into our house to survey how we're spending the money. Just give us the money because we know how to clothe, feed, and take care of our families and children, and we know what's best for them. And so, got into social, because they also experienced that social service runaround. And what they kept saying was, trust us to do what is right by our own families. And, and of course, the, the institutions did not trust poor people to be able to um, make decisions for themselves. And so you have all of this oversight resulting in a social service runaround. So what I am, what you can expect from me is um, in early 2022, my book will be coming out and it's called Continually Working, Black Women's Economic Activism in Postwar Milwaukee. And that's where you're going to be able to read my ideas about the importance of the struggle for economic justice and how Black women thought about and strategized their way into thinking about solutions to economic injustice. And what I will say about this book is that the struggle continues. This is not a book where you're going to reading and be like, wow, the problem has been solved. No, economic injustice continues to manifest itself and it continues to change and rearrange the rules of the game um, such that um, impoverished, minoritized, marginalized people still struggle within a capitalist system that is hierarchical. And so um, the book is meant, though, to illuminate some of the strategies that Black women deployed in the struggle, because I think we can learn learn from them and learn from where they kept hitting their heads up against what I refer to as a concrete wall. Right. Um, And so I think that's important. So that's that's the book that will be coming out in 2022. As far as my museum work, I am in the process of connecting with communities. And my particular focus with my museum work is to actually think about the urban Midwest, because uh, many of the objects in the museum collections, they um, represent coast. Right. So the East Coast or the West Coast. And so there's this silence about or related to Black people in the Midwest. And so I am really um, looking forward to building our collections around that area.
0: A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I really, really appreciate like your candor in this conversation. And I would love to chat like a bit more about the work you're doing at the Smithsonian, the work Mm -hmm. you do methodologically and the things that you've uncovered, like in that work. Yeah. Um, I
2: would love, love to hear more about that and what i was thinking about earlier and reflecting on earlier related to black women's history is that many times you need to go to multiple archives to be able to tell um, tell the story of Black women's lives. You won't just be able to go to one repository and get all of your questions answered, but you have to go to multiple archives. So what an archive is, is basically in historical terms, is a repository that holds primary sources, that holds, I should say, documents related to historical time period. So they could be letters, they could be um, flyers, they could be the records of an organization or an individual, um, but basically they're repository that hold historical records. And so to me, um, approaching an archive was really new. I had never been in one. I didn't know how to access one and I had to learn all of that. Um, But typically, well, sometimes when people say the archive, they think kind of generically or generally as the archive of all historical documents. But as a historian, we have a specific understanding of what an archive is. And usually it is a a repository that holds collections of... Of documents. When I, again, when I approached the archive, again, Black women were all over the archive. And there are, you know, three people that I want to um, basically share a little bit about who stand out to me, um, especially when I think about, again, those prior historians who wrote about or who used some of the same sources that I used, but didn't quite see these black women. And so one black woman, her name is Artie Howard. Um, and she was she's well known in Wisconsin and, and in Milwaukee specifically uh, for being a co-founder of the first black financial institution in the state of Wisconsin. She co-founded Columbia Savings and Loan Association with her husband Wilbur. Both Artie and Wilbur went on to be very involved with the local chapter of the NAACP. And so many people, they know the basic facts about Columbia and uh, and about the Hallyers' involvement with the NAACP, including the fact that in the 1950s, Artie became the first Black woman president of the local branch. Now, in thinking about Artie and Wilbur's decision to start a financial institution, you would think surely they were focused on economic justice, focused on, you know, housing for Black folks. And yes, they were. Um, but when historians have typically talked about the Halyards, they they talk about them as being entrepreneurs, as starting this business. But then, you know, that's all right. And that maybe comes up to like three or four paragraphs. Like they they refer to these people and then they move on to whatever other point they're trying to make. And my thought was we need to pause. And we especially need to pause on Artie Halyard's part of the equation because she can teach us so much. I mean, if I had... You know, ample space. You know, I could write a biography of Artie Howyer. She's done so much. Um, And that autobiography could really be centered on her economic justice-related activism, which, again, I found all over the record. And so in addition to starting the business, um, during her time... Uh, as president of the NAACP, she also was concerned about Black working women and, and concerned about getting them good jobs, access to good jobs in the city. So much so that some Black working women went to Artie Howard with their complaints of job discrimination, with their complaints of being mistreated on the at the on the workforce, and they expected her. They asked her to intervene on their behalf, and she did. And she did. And so my book explores some examples of women who she went to bat for um, on their behalf, including a, a black doctor who was trying to get a job um, in Milwaukee in the 1950s. A black woman doctor who had gotten her a medical degree from Howard University was trying to come work in Milwaukee, including some black hospital workers who were working in the hospital system already, but who were being very mistreated by their supervisors, right? And so I tell these stories to illuminate the fact that, yes, Artie Halliard was the president of the NAACP, and we typically think about that as a political organization, but as part of their political agenda, because they were in the urban Midwest, jobs and housing was a part of that, right? And so we have to amplify that part of the story. And so I do that when I talk about Artie Halliard. Another, another person that I, um, kind of have uncovered in my research is a woman named Maddie DeWeese. And Maddie DeWeese started the first Black beauty school in the state of Wisconsin because cosmetology education was segregated um, in the 1930s. And so she started her beauty school in the 1940s because the state was cracking down on people who were practicing hair or doing hair without a license in their kitchens, as we would say. And so Maddie DeWeese thought, well, hey, you know, I will start this beauty school and I will help Black women pass this licensing examination so that they can do hair legally. Because what was happening is that the state was finding out who was doing hair legal, illegally, going to their homes and arresting people. It wasn't as simple as that they were given a fine, but they would take women and arrest them. And so Maddie DeWeese was like, no, not on my watch, not on my watch. And so I'm going to start this school. Right, so that Black women can get licensed, and, and beauty work is really important to consider because it was one way that Black women could advance themselves economically, and it didn't require much, right? Um, and so um, Deweese was removing the structural barrier to Black women's economic advancement by starting and running this beauty school, and of course there were it, it came up against lots of obstacles and obstructions as it certified and, regu- and, and was under these state regulations. And so I write about all of that. Um, and I uncover Maddie DeWeese's um, story because what I, think it, what I think it also reveals are the ways in which Black beauticians were, again, also concerned about economic justice, but also concerned about community involvement and um, the development. And so then the final story that I want to tell is about Cassie Downer. Now, Cassie Downer, um, again, from, lived in Milwaukee. She was a part of the Milwaukee Welfare Rights Movement, and she was the chairperson of the Milwaukee County Welfare Rights Organization. And under her watch, the organization published a book that featured the stories, the words, and the knowledge of Black welfare mothers. And that book, right, is so, 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 so important because we don't often think of Black poor people, Black poor mothers as intellectuals, right? And with this book, they were trying to change a narrative. They were trying to change the story about who is on welfare and why and why it is important or required why the nation should care about poverty and and creating a real solution to poverty no one should be impoverished and the, and again thinking about how do we value and compensate mothers for their labor. And so welfare mothers were really intervening on a discourse about motherhood, about labor, about welfare and welfare rights. And, and the leader of the Milwaukee movement played a key role in getting and um, helping with that book. And so those are just three women who I study, who have, they've come up in the record in other times, right? But never with, uh, with, uh, with the spotlight, on specifically their economic justice-related work. And so that's really what I'm doing. I'm not saying that it's not important to think about, you know, the political aspect, but thinking that the economic is a part of that political aspect, and we cannot erase that from the story.
0: No, this was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for your time, your fellowship. Um, It is an honor to be a colleague in this space. Um, And let's not make this... The last time we chat. Yes, I agree. All of that. Ditto.
1: (laughs) (laughs) On behalf of Dr. Lewis and the production team behind Disruptive Narratives, I'd like to thank Dr. Bowton for this conversation. We hope we've done your story justice. Please look out for our next conversation with Minneapolis Everythingist, Stacey Bell. Disruptive Narratives is a production of KMOJ Radio and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, featuring Dr. Brittany Lewis, produced by Miranda Wilson, edited by Justice Sanchez, made with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. To find more of our conversations, search for Disruptive Narratives wherever you find your podcasts.